pastor, has been a pastor for uh, 16 years, yeah. uh, staff pastor for six years, and I believe a uh, lead pastor for 10 That's years. Yeah. Uh, he's a teacher, he's an author, and uh, God has uniquely gifted him uh, with an, uh, an ability to speak truth in the area of mental health and all the kinds of dysfunction. Now, none of us have any dysfunction, do we? Um, none, of, none of you visited family and friends over the holidays and just was like, oh man, they're related to me. But uh, we, all, we all have issues, right? And we need the word of God. We need the truth to help us. And I appreciate uh, Dr. Mike Caparelli. Um, he has uh, training and in, in, uh, PhD in behavioral science, but most importantly, he knows and loves the Word of God, right. and he has a, a just a, an ability to communicate uh, truth in such a, a powerful way. So would you just open up your heart and receive our brother as he comes. God bless thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, man. I love you. Bless you, too. Happy New Year. Good to see everybody. I love your pastor. He's a good friend. I'm so glad that you don't have access to our text messages and uh, some of the some of the back and forth on Godfather movies and what have you. But anyways, <laughs> glad you're here. Happy New Year. Pray a blessing on you. So good for the ladies to be here with us from Teen Challenge. Uh, if you don't know, um, I travel the country speaking on mental health issues. I was in, I think, 18 states last year. Um, I've authored a book called Monster Mirror. It's a book on the transformation of if someone is psychopathic, there's no hope. But God says, what's impossible for man is possible for me. Amen. Amen. Uh, David Berkowitz in the 1970s was a serial killer who held the entire New York City hostage with fear for about 15 months. And uh, he was arrested at 24 years old. He's been incarcerated since 1977. I spent 34 sessions, the longest analysis of David Berkowitz in his 46 years and we discussed not only the crimes and the demonic influences behind the crimes, more importantly, we discovered his transformation since 1988 when he gave his life to Christ. Um, the book came out October 10th. It was the same day that I was on the 700 Club. You can go on YouTube and watch it. Um, and it instantly, the first three days, it, it ranked the number one uh, new release in the serial killer category. Now, look, I would rather it be number one there than the number one religious book. You fish where there's fish. I mean, that you know, some church people have a problem with that, but I don't. It's the gospel, the light of the gospel shining in a dark place. I was proud of that. I said, look at this, the story of a, of a serial killer turning into a saint. So I think really this is a book of hope. Uh, it's a book that if anyone is here dealing with any psychological problem, if God can forgive and transform David Berkowitz, he can do it for anybody. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, you can see me at Child of God, David Berkowitz, autograph the books, and I'll sign it for you. There's hardcover copies only available um, here. You can go on Amazon for the paperbacks, and I've got some paperback Spanish uh, versions too. You can just see me afterwards. Um, I do have a word for you this morning. If you can open your Bible to Luke 18. We were talking miracles earlier. We were praying for miracles. And I really felt the Holy Spirit tell me that for some of you, the miracle is not in the healing of a broken leg. It's not in the 
even healing of cancer, but it's in the forgiveness of a sin that you have. And for you, that is a miracle. And I'm, I'm believing that you're going to end 2023 with a clean slate. I want to talk to you about a heavy conscience. I want to talk to you about the ramifications of guilt and what guilt can do to the mind and the body. And I want to talk to you most importantly about the remedial effects of the cross. Let's go to Luke 18. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that at the cross there's forgiveness for all sins. We come to the cross this evening. Lord, some of us have been victimized. We've been injured. We've been hurt, molested, abused. But Lord, we don't come as victims. We come as culprits. Because you did not die to save victims. You died to save culprits. Lord, we think about not just the sins committed against us, but we think about the sins that we've committed against you and others. Forgive us, we pray, tonight. Let the, the blood of Jesus Christ, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Forgive us tonight, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Luke 18. Jesus tells a parable. And verse 10, the Bible says, Two men go into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all my income. But the tax collector, standing afar, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I tell you, the man went down to his house. The second man justified rather than the other. Somebody say justified. justified. Underline that word justified in your Bible. Because we're going to talk a lot about that word justified. So these two kids, Frankie, Mario... Real troublemakers in the neighborhood. And uh, I mean, real, like just troublemakers, 10, 11 years old, pranks, graffiti, you name it. Mother has had, she's reached her limit. She decides, that's it. I'm taking these two to the local priest. He's got a reputation of reforming bad kids. She takes Mario first to Father O'Connell. He's the priest in the neighborhood. He reforms bad kids. He meets with Mario. And he asked Mario a question to awaken his conscience. He says, Mario, he says, where is God? Mario doesn't respond. So he asked the question a second time. He says, Mario, where is God? Still no response. A third time, makes a fist, punches the table, and he says, Mario, where is God? Mario gets up. He bolts out of the office, runs home. He shuts himself in his bedroom closet. His brother Frankie opens the door. He says, Mario, he says, what happened? He says, Frankie, he says, we're in trouble. He said, God went missing and they think we did it. (laughs) 
I want to talk about a heavy conscience. I want to talk about guilt. You know, guilt initially is a good thing. Studies show most trustworthy people in your life are those that are prone to guilt. It means they have a healthy conscience. A healthy conscience is a conscience that when you commit wrong, it's blaring. I often ask the question, why did Peter hear a rooster crow? Why not a bird chirp? Why not a cow moo? Why not a dog bark? What was it about a rooster? In ancient times, this is just my theory, but we do know in ancient times, a rooster was an alarm clock. Now we know from the writings of Hebrews that when you're in a state of sin, you're in a state of slumber. It was the alarm clock, the rooster that woke Peter up from his moral slumber. And Peter, at least he was sensitive enough to hear the crowing of the rooster. He had a conscience that was working. Judas never heard the rooster crow because a conscience that is working is a conscience that is blaring when you're in the wrong. Amen? So it's good when your conscience pricks you. Initially, guilt, it raises cortisol levels. It escalates norepinephrine. Cortisol says it's time to get busy. You got work to do. Norepinephrine is about focus. It's about self-reflection. Guilt initially is good. It says something is wrong, and that wrong must be made right. Now, if guilt is not resolved over a period of time, your GABA levels begin to lower. GABA is a neurotransmitter, helps you sleep at night. Now we have what we call a heavy conscience. How many have had a heavy conscience that's kept you up at night? You've, you've tossed and turned, rehearsing and rehashing the sins of yesteryear, a heavy conscience. Guilt initially is good, eventually is detrimental. You lose sleep with a heavy conscience. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I don't lose sleep. I must have a good conscience. I must be a man of integrity. I sleep well. There are two reasons why you sleep well. You either sleep good because you have a good conscience or you have a bad memory. Huh? Some people sleep good because they got a bad memory. <laughs> a heavy conscience. Now, when that conscience is, is blaring, by the way, the Bible says in this parable, these two men, they walk into the temple to pray. That's significant. They're in the temple. Why is that location so significant? Because the temple, it screams the holiness of God. The showbread, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, the Torah, all of these emblems, they have confronted God's holiness. And when you confront God's holiness, he confronts your hideousness. All through the Old Testament, when men step into the company of the holy, they come undone. Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I have an unclean heart. His holiness accentuates my hideousness. You can't step into a well-lit room without every blemish on blast. You ever step into a well-lit room and you're like, oh boy, I look good in a low-lit room. But in a well-lit room, every pore is on blast. 
How many have seen some of those fluorescent mirrors in bathrooms, right? It's like, who is that creature in the, in the mirror? Turn the lights off. You step into God's holiness, it puts on blast your hideousness. And here we have two men, they've been found out because when you step into the presence of God, you will be found out. How many have been found out? You've had your sins put on display. You've had your defects, your iniquities, the mistakes, the misdeeds, all of it. It reached the headlines. Maybe it's even on Dateline. And there you are, and you're on blast. And in that moment of utter exposure, watch this. One man, he justifies his sins. The other man, his sins are justified. This whole parable is about justification. You are either going to justify your sins. When you're found out, you're going to justify your sins. Or when you're found out, your sins will be justified. I'm not playing with words here. This is not semantics. There's a big difference between you justifying your sins and your sins being justified. One man, he pleads, Lord, I'm not guilty. The other man, he pleads, Lord, have mercy. My prayer tonight is if you're praying, Lord, I'm not guilty, that you would pray, Lord, have mercy, because Jesus has not come to save the innocent. He's only come to save the guilty. If you, if you, maybe that's what your habit is. Maybe it's justifying. You got a habit of just justifying. Every time you commit a sin, isn't it interesting that when we commit wrong, we've got to somehow make the wrong right? I mean, we just don't commit wrong. We explain why we did the wrong. Because we've got to silence that voice of conscience. We've got to gag that guilt. We've got to gag. We've got to put censorship on that inner prosecutor that sticks his long, bony finger at you, that accuses Listen, I am convinced that nobody gets away with anything. Even if you never go before the judge, even if the cop never puts cuffs on you, even if you're never arrested, you will have to live with yourself and you will have to stand before God and you will come up with all sorts of crafty, clever arguments to gag the guilt. Well, how's it working for you? Because the truth is the guilt doesn't go away. Not when you're justifying it. The only way the guilt goes away, there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. This is the doctrine of justification. Jesus says, let me justify your sins. Stop justifying because as long as you're justifying, you're pleading not guilty. And as long as you're pleading not guilty, then all the remedial benefits of the cross, they cease to exist. But when you say, Lord, I'm guilty, now your sins are justified. Are you hearing this? I mean, we've got this need to like, rationalize, explain it away. I try to teach my kids when they were young. I didn't only teach my kids to do the right thing because I, I know they're my kids and they're my offspring. I just didn't, didn't teach them to do the right thing. I taught them how to do the right thing after you do the wrong thing because <laughs> I know they're going to do the wrong thing. 
I told my daughter Olivia, she was about 10 or 11, I said, listen, when you apologize, don't rationalize, just apologize. Don't say I'm sorry, but just say I'm sorry. The day came, she took a grapefruit, she threw it at her 15-year-old brother, hit him in the head. I said, listen, you're not going to the mall today, I'm not taking you to the store, you want to buy a dress, not happening until you write them an apology. She sits down, she's 11 years old, she writes this apology letter to him, she's writing the letter, I'm so proud, she's practicing this contrition. She folds it up, she puts it under the door, I take the apology letter out, I got to read it, I unfold it, and here's what it reads. Daddy told me to say I'm sorry, so I'm sorry, you big butt cheek from Livy. <clears throat> That's true. I said, stop adding addendums to the apology. I'm sorry. That's it. But we've got this need. We've got this need to justify, to rationalize. To, to come up with an argument. Listen, when you know what you, what you do when you rationalize? You come up with rational lies. Rational lies. When Paul describes spiritual warfare in Corinthians, he doesn't say you're wrestling with, uh, you know, otherworldly creatures. He says you're casting down arguments. Argu arguments in Greek is the word logismos. It's logic, persuasive lines of reasoning, things that get you off the hook, mindsets and excuses, explanations. When I met with David Berkowitz, he said, Mike, I want to explain the crimes, but I don't want to make excuses because there's nothing that can excuse 13 shootings, one stabbing, 1,400 fires. He says, I can't make excuses. I just want to give an explanation. Well, we come up with explanations or excuses because we've got to gag the guilt. And when you're gagging the guilt, by the way, that conscience, Romans 1, the same finger that inscribed the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. He etched the law of God in your hearts. You're not just gagging guilt, you're gagging God. That conscience is the voice of God. You better be true to your conscience, or your conscience won't be true to you. The same conscience that accuses you and says you're wrong, you shouldn't do this. If you don't listen to that conscience, Romans 1 says it'll turn on you. Now it doesn't accuse you, but it defends you. It gives you reason why it's okay to do what's wrong, why it's perfectly fine to betray someone, why it's completely acceptable to cheat on someone. And the Bible says that that conscience, it is the very voice of God. So you're not just gagging guilt, you're gagging God. It doesn't work. The guilt doesn't go away. We carry it into the new year. My prayer this evening is that you, you begin this new year with a clean slate. Now, I want to look at this parable a little bit more closely. I want to look specifically at this Pharisee and some of the arguments, some of the ways he justifies his sins. Because there's a Pharisee not just sitting next to you, but there's a Pharisee inside every single one of us. The Bible is a mirror of my soul, not my neighbor's soul. It's not the Pharisee in, in the elder board or the board committee. It's not a, the Pharisee inside of me. 
That in this parable, the Pharisee, he's a man who justifies his sins. And ironically, the tax collector, the dreads of society, the scoundrels of that time period, his sins are justified. Now, by the way, if you, if you don't have a lawyer, you want to get a good lawyer, a lawyer that knows how to justify. <laughs> Lawyers are really good at justifying, by the way. How many know a good lawyer? Any lawyers in the house? Raise your hand. No, no lawyers? We got to get some lawyers in this church. We got people with criminal backgrounds. We need some lawyers. Got to have a, a mix of the two. This guy, he dies, right? He's got three million cash and he loves his money. And he tells his three friends, he says, look, I'm going to give you each a million cash. He says, when I die, I want you to bury the money with me in the casket. Well, day goes by. His, he dies day after that, the, after the funeral. His three friends are meeting for coffee. First friend says, I feel so guilty. He says, I, I didn't do it. He says, I kept a million. The second friend says, I feel like an idiot. He goes, I buried the million in the casket. The third friend is quiet. He's a lawyer. He ain't saying nothing. <laughs> Two friends look at him and they go, so which is it? You feel guilty or you feel stupid? He says, neither. I wrote him a check for a million dollars. Somebody say, justify. justify. <laughs> Got to make the wrong right. Whatever it takes to make the wrong right. In this passage, the Pharisee, he presents two arguments that are very uh, prevalent, very common to modern church folk. He presents the argument of compensation and he presents the argument of competition. Compensation, he says, look, I, okay. He goes, I may have committed some bad deeds, but I commit good deeds, and my good deeds hopefully are going to offset my bad deeds. He goes, look, I might be an adulterer in my heart. Maybe I have hate, whatever it is you know about me, God, but I fast and I tithe all of my income. He's hoping that his virtues will cancel out his vices. He's hoping that his good works are going to nullify his bad works. He's hoping that his morality is going to wash away his depravity. He hasn't opened the scroll to read the prophet Isaiah's words. Isaiah didn't say your bad deeds are filthy rags. He said your good deeds are filthy rags. He's thinking his good deeds are going to wash away his bad deeds. The prophet of the Old Testament said your good deeds. He didn't say your bad deeds. He didn't say your sins, your iniquities, your adultery. He didn't say any of that. He said your good works. He said the good thing, the charitable givings, all your gestures of kindness, all your generosity. He said all these things in the company of God, they are filthy rags. That's one thing for a coach to tell an athlete on a bad day. You're, you're horrible. You need to, like, hang it up, quit sports. It's another thing for a coach to tell an athlete on his best day. You're horrible. God, the Word of God is telling us on our best behavior, we need Jesus. Our very 
most charitable, generous acts, we fall short God's glory. Now that might be a hard pill for us to swallow because we have delusions of goodness, especially in a humanistic society that tells you you're good. But God is not evaluating your works based on action. He's evaluating your works based on intention. Man sees the outward appearance. The Lord sees the heart. I think it's hysterical when people say things like this. They go, right, well, God knows my heart. That should scare the heck out of you. Well, he knows my heart. No, he knows it. He knows my heart. <laughs> you don't know it. Because things can look on the surface altruistic, but at the root be narcissistic. You can give, you can be charitable, you can help someone, you can go out of your way, but at the core, you need to be needed. At the core, you need to be noticed. The surface, it's altruistic, but at the core, it's very narcissistic. I, you know, I, one, of the, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is to challenge humanism because the title Monster Mirror is to say, look, in, in every monster, there's a mirror that stares right back at you and you and I, there's a monster in us. This idea of psychopath being a separate breed of people to me is ridiculous. The Bible doesn't say the heart of a psychopath is wicked and deceitful above all things. It says the heart of man, mankind, all of us, the potentiality for evil. You have you yet to meet your bad side and the potential of evil. Listen, chances are if we were living in 1940s Germany, chances are you would not be standing on the right side. You would be standing on the wrong side. The heroes were few in any of these awful historic events all through history the heroes are few and the villains are many because the heart of man is wicked and deceitful but yet on social media everybody's ex is a narcissist <laughs> have you noticed that everybody's ex-husband's a narcissist everybody has everybody was married to a narcissist and if you pay close attention to these people that are saying everyone else is a narcissist whoo no, I'm an empath. Really? <laughs> That's the new term now. I'm an empath. <laughs> I, I can prove you're all narcissists, including me. We take a group photo. I show you the picture. Whose face do you look for first? Huh? Whose face? Yours. So, you know, we have this, like, this spell over our culture that we're good. It's very difficult to preach the gospel. We've got to break through that humanism. This book, is, my, my goal was to shatter the humanism, to say, look, there's a potential monster in you. You don't think you're capable of psychopathic behavior? For six months, avoid all close, intimate relationships. Mull over your resentments against somebody who injured you. Uh, begin to berate yourself continually. Look in the mirror and speak ill of yourself. Just isolate in over six months. Justify every wrong deed you do, and you watch what you become in six months to a year it's an evolution I think the more appropriate term than psychopath is in Romans 1 and it's the word reprobate to me that's the real that's the real warning because it's for everyone 
They're given a succession of choices. Suppress the truth. Harden your heart. Turn your back on God. Give cold shoulders to the poor. And in a matter of time, you will become, every one of us will become a reprobate. So, you know, we think on the surface it looks good, whatever we do. But at the core, you love yourself. You love yourself so much, Jesus used your love for yourself as the golden standard to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. We know you got that down. There was no command needed to love you. He didn't have to give a command for that. He said, love your neighbor. It's already assumed as you love yourself. So, you know, here's the Pharisee. He's saying, I fast, I tithe. And he's looking at these good works based on action. But God sees intention. Uh, Let me break it down like this. Two puppies are cuddling on a cold night in Central Park. They're cuddling. It's cold. Outside, they're cuddling. One lady walks by. She's a simpleton. She's naive. She says, look how lovely. The puppies, they're so kind. They're keeping each other warm. The wise lady says, no, they're keeping themselves warm. Because what looks altruistic, when you get close enough, you realize it's narcissistic. And yeah, you vacuum the church. And yeah, you give 10% of your income. And yes, you volunteered. And you did all these things. But somewhere inside, there's a need to be needed, a need to be noticed. There's no rights we have to brag and say, God, I did these bad things. But please, let these good things wash away these bad things that's the Pharisee compensation he thinks he can work off whatever wrong he's done and there are people here you're exhausted for trying to work that off I mean you've worn yourself thin trying to work it off trying to gag the guilt trying to censor the conscience and it's not working in fact if you don't come to Christ and let him justify your sins instead of you justifying your own sins there are some people that are going to have a lot of fun with you because there are some people that they have a a good uh, sense almost for who's guilt ridden and they know how to play with you manipulate that guilt some of you had some family holidays with them amen (laughs) they'll make a slave out of you second argument the pharisee gives not just compensation but competition Basically, what he says is, I might be bad, but I ain't that bad. How many times have you been caught, found out, caught red-handed, your blemishes are on blast, your defects are on display, there you are, exposed, like you're in the wrong, and now the way you weasel out of that guilt is you say, okay, I might have did wrong, but at least I didn't do that. Right? Have you done this? I'm, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as the tax collector. Now, tax collectors were the worst of the worst in that society because they hustle people financially. They're probably people that homes are foreclosed because of tax collectors. A tax collector has got what it takes to take what you got. And he looks and he says, I'm bad, but not as bad as the tax collector. I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as the psychopath. Here's the problem with this logic. God is not grading you on a bell curve. 
I'm a professor at three colleges. If enough students bomb the tests, if everybody bombs the tests, I got to start grading not against the hundred, but I got to start grading them against each other. God is not grading you on a bell curve. He's not grading you against your neighbor. He's grading you against himself. The Bible doesn't say you fall short your neighbor's decency. It says you fall short God's glory. Competition. So we kind of get on this mindset that we're sort of competing with other people. And as long as I'm not as bad as him, I'm doing okay. But God is not grading you against him. He's grading you against himself. It's not that you fell short of his decency. It's you fell short of God's glory. How many times have you gagged that guilt? By, by taking whatever you did and comparing it to what your sister did. How's that working for you? The guilt doesn't go away. You're either going to justify your sins or your sins are going to be justified. Somebody say justify. Can you see how much we need to be justified? Am I making this like clear tonight? That you and I, we need justification. This is probably the most Billy Graham sermon that I've ever preached. Probably the most gospel-centered sermon because the gospel is all about justification. It's all about atonement. It's all about making the wrong right. Man cannot make his wrongs right. Adam tried that in the garden. You've been trying that your entire life. Hiding behind fig trees. uh, Making excuses. Blaming other people. All the rationales. And God said, says, stop justifying your sins. Only I can justify them. Now, this competition thing really doesn't work, and I'm going to tell you why. First of all, you're not really a good judge of how you rank in comparison to your neighbor. You're a little biased, maybe a little bit. Can I geek out on you for a minute and teach you a theory in psychology that says something very profound about our human nature? This is a a social phenomenon that's been confirmed maybe a dozen times in a dozen experiments since 1978. It's called the fundamental attribution error. You're going to learn something if you follow me for a minute. Now, when we explain human behavior, we make an attribution. An attribution is to explain the cause of something. You're saying, I attribute that behavior to this. There are two kinds of attributions, follow me. Two kinds of attributions. You're smart enough, you can get this. The first attribution is a situational attribution. A situational attribution is when you say, I acted like a jerk because of the situation. That's that's the cause. I was a jerk because of the traffic jam. I was a jerk because of the stressful day. I was a jerk because of the boss yelling at me. I was a jerk because I was hungry. How many become jerks when you get hungry? You get hangry. Anybody get angry? I get angry. My wife's like, feed him. He's going to eat on the hour. On the hour, feed him. Hurry up. Okay? Those are situational attributions. You're a Mama Luke because of the situation. Mama Luke is an Italian colloquialism for fool. You are a Mama Luke because of the situation. Dispositional attributions, you're saying, I'm a Mama Luke. Because I'm a mama look. It's in the disposition. 
It's who I am. It's my character. Call it a sinful nature. Whatever you want to call it. It's not external. It's internal. Why I behave the way I do, it has something to do with what's inside of me, not what's outside of me. You got all that, right? Now watch this. About 12 to 15 experiments since the 70s. Uh, studies done on people that are having conflict, whether it be marital conflict, conflicts in organizations, show that people are prone to the fundamental attribution error. Here's what it is. When you are wrong, you make situational attributions in explaining why you're wrong. When your neighbor's wrong, you make dispositional attributions in explaining why he's wrong. Let me say it this way. If you're a mamaluke, it's because you are hungry. But if your husband's a mamaluke, it's because he's a mamaluke. If I'm a jerk, it's because I was stressed. If you're a jerk, you've been practicing jerkhood since you were 60, 16. You're 60 now. You got 50 some odd years of practicing jerkhood. So this is built in hypocrisy that we, that we judge our neighbor harshly and we assess ourselves graciously. I mean, it's, it's there. It's part of your makeup. You can see it in a lot of different ways. Look, when you speak your mind, you're being real. If I speak my mind, I'm being rude. Right? When you're diplomatic, when you're tactful, oh, well, you're being diplomatic. It's diplomacy. If your neighbor's diplomatic, he's a people pleaser. Isn't it funny how we judge ourselves graciously and assess our neighbor harshly? So the Pharisee, for the Pharisee at his neighbor's sins and say, well, the, his sins are far greater than my sins. He's of, in no place, no, no position. He's of no status to be making these judgments. There's a plank in your eye and there's only sawdust in your neighbor's eye. Now, when Jesus says plank, sawdust, he's not speaking of the size of the sin. Because you could just be a liar and your neighbor could be a murderer, but your, your lie is a plank to you and, and his murder is sawdust to you. It's speaking of the size of the relevance. My sins are most relevant to me. It's a plank to me. Whether it's a lie, gossip, whatever, it's a plank to me and your issues are sawdust to me. What's more relevant when you stand before God on judgment day and you face the almighty? Is it your sins? Or is it your neighbor's sins? The most inconsequential conversation on that day will be what somebody else did. You won't even get a word out of your mouth. When you're facing the one whose eyes are like fire, you're not getting over on God. He's on to every con. He knows all about you. He's aware. He has top secret classified information on you. There's no getting over on God. You can't say, but he did this or she did that. It's just you and him. So let's get this right on this day. Before we get to that day. Amen. On this day, let's just say, Lord, I don't plead not guilty. I plead, Lord, have mercy. Kind of reminds me of this passage. Probably shouldn't cite this movie. Don't go see it. It's a movie you see before Christ. 
maybe I've seen it a few times after Christ. But Scarface. Al Pacino plays Tony Montana. He's this thug, this gangster. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows he's a bad guy. Reputation. He's in this restaurant. He's drunk. He stands up. Everybody's looking at him. And he looks at them. And he says, you need people like me. So you can point your finger and say, that's a bad guy. What does that make you, a good guy? No. You just know how to lie. Remember that? That's this parable right here. Say good night to the bad guy. Last time you're going to see a bad guy like this, let me tell you something. What does that make you, a good guy? I'm a bad guy, you're a good guy? How we love our bad guys. I teach a criminal psychology class, and one of the questions I ask the students is, why, why is America fascinated with psychopaths and serial killers and true crime? Why is that the most popular genre of books sold? There are a lot of reasons for this, why people love their Hannibal Lecters and they love their psychopaths, but one of the reasons, one of many, and I can elaborate on about five to ten, one of many is the bad guys make us feel like good guys. Make us feel a little bit better about whatever our issue is. But man, does it set you up for self-righteousness. And man, does it push you far away from the cross. Because Jesus did not die for the not guilty. Everybody in prison is not guilty. Everybody. He died for the guilty. In fact, I have a word for some of you. You need a new therapist. Because your therapist is always talking to you about the wrongs other people did to you. And there's not enough talk in that therapy session about the wrongs you did to other people. And all they're doing is making a little narcissist out of you and thinking that everybody else is the narcissist and you only spot it because you got it. I want to go to a therapist that tells me the wrongs that I did because that guilt is weighing on me more than anything. Listen, the guilt, the guilt of what I did to someone is heavier than the wounds of what they did to me. One psychiatrist actually said, if I could convince my patients that their sins were forgiven, I'd be out of a job in a week. How many of our neurotic disorders are rooted in guilt? I'm not saying all, but there's a percentage. How many of our psychotic disorders are rooted in guilt? How many mental health issues would go away? Depression might go away for some people. It went away for me at 18 years old. All of a sudden, I'm saved. At the same time, I'm delivered from depression. Why? Because I found out my sins were forgiven and the albatross of guilt was lifted from my back, and I was free. Prozac is not going to get rid of the guilt. You can take as many Prozacs as you want to. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away our sins and cleanse our conscience. Am I saying all depression is rooted in guilt? No. But there's a percentage of it is that is. If we're trying to cleanse our conscience through medication, the guilt's not going away. Only the blood. Only the blood. Pharisee says, I might be bad, but I'm not that bad. There's a man named John Bradford back in the 1700s in England. He was a mighty man of God. 
Back in those days when a man was sentenced to a crime and had to uh, be served his sentence, it was a public deal. Town people would come out, the man would walk through the town, they'd heckle him, call him a scoundrel, you know, whatever name you can think of, just hurling these insults at this guilty party. And John Bradford, amidst all the heckling, he stands up at the top of some rock and he yells out loud, pointing at the man. He says, there but for the grace of God, go I. He says, you know, that, that, that monster, you see a monster, I see a mirror. These are all pointing at that man and saying what a monster he is. And I'm looking at that man and I'm seeing me. And I'm saying, but for the grace of God, I would have did the same thing. I, I pray tonight if there's one thing that you leave with is that you leave with a mirror. That when you read the word of God, you don't read the word of God thinking about how it applies to somebody else. Somebody getting on your nerves. Somebody that needs to get it right. You'd say, God, this is a mirror. Let me look into it and let it look into me. And you change your plea. Change the plea. David Berkowitz, lawyer told him in 1977, David, I can get you off the hook. He said, you plead not guilty by reason of insanity. He said, I mean, the things you did were deranged. His apartment had a big hole, watermelon-sized hole. Next to it said, Mr. Williams lives in this hole, and he's raising up his demonic children to murder the world. I mean, his, his apartment was just a den of darkness, out of his mind. And for a minute, he entertained it. If I pleaded not guilty, I had, he had a psychiatrist at the time that was going to testify and say he was psychotic, didn't know what he was doing. There was an African-American minister from Staten Island who visited with her. Him. Her name was Ali, O-L-L-I-E. She was a Pentecostal. This is before he got saved. But he said, you know, I felt the presence of God even back then. And when she left the room, she an hour with him with a Bible study. He came out and he told his lawyer, I'm changing my plea. I'm not, I'm not pleading not guilty. I'm pleading guilty. He said, first time I felt conviction. Change your plea. Some of you have been, you've been playing for a long time, not guilty. Everyone in prison is not guilty. And they stay stuck in their mindset as a victim rather than the victimizer. They see themselves as cheated rather than seeing themselves as the cheater. And his grace can't flow. Mercy can't be extended. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come to save victims. He came to save culprits. The therapist has made a victim out of you. And as long as you're a victim, the cross is null and void. You got to realize there's a culprit inside of me. Carl Jung called it the shadow. The Bible calls it the sinful nature. There's this dark side of me and I need a savior. Without Christ, I am a psychopath. But for the grace of God, go I. Until you come to the point of the second man rather than the first man. You're going to spend your whole life justifying, but never justified. Worship team. Hallelujah. You know, if, if this hurts, if this message hurts, then maybe I'm doing my job. 
Shakespeare said the man was cruel to be kind. So I'm going to be cruel to be kind. I want, if you, listen, if you haven't heard the rooster crow in a long time, I pray tonight you hear the rooster crow. Let it wake you up from that moral slumber. Wake us up, oh God. I pray for consciences. And those of you that feel condemned, those of you that are under heavy condemnation, and you've tried every way to gag the guilt, you've tried every way to justify, tonight, tonight, I, I'm, I'm pleading with you, change your plea. Change your plea. Come clean. Come clean. You can play anytime. You got to come clean, really. This is what, this is where the healing begins. Transformation begins when denial ends. You got to just come clean. No more covering it up. Covering up with excuses. I, I hate to use bathroom talk, but this illustration is just too, too good not to use it. You go to the bathroom. There's a stink. First of all, why does everybody walk into the bathroom when you're done using the bathroom and say, it stinks in here like it's a surprise? It's the bathroom. Of course it stinks. If it smells like this in the kitchen, we got problems. But this is the bathroom. Why is everybody shocked when they walk into the church and they find sin in the church? We're all here because we're not all there. We're all here because we need a savior. Now you got a stench in the bathroom. There are two ways of resolving the stench. I know the first way is very popular, but I don't know this part of me, this critical part of me has never accepted it. You go out, you got a stench, and you buy uh, tropical blueberry pineapple air freshener. And now you spray it. And you got this tropical smell tinged with something else. It's a strange concoction. This strange concoction is a really good picture of our goodness. Like our goodness that's covering up our badness, right? You're really nice, but you're only nice because you're nasty. And the nicer you are, the nastier you are. And the nastier, the nicer. It's like you're working. You're, you're working hard. Good works cover the bad works. All those good works, don't get rid of the anger problem. Underneath the good works is anger, right? Or bitterness or whatever it is. So the first way is the cover-up. Somebody say the cover-up. Cover-up doesn't work too well. The second way is you open the window, and to me, this is confession, because you let the bad air out, and you let the good air in. And tonight, I'm asking you, open the window. Let's open the windows to God and one to another. Now, look, some sins, you come to God, and God forgives, and you move on, and it was you and God. But if you keep coming to the Father, and you keep coming to the Father, and you keep struggling, at some point you need to go to the brother or go to the sister. I'll let the Holy Spirit tell you which way that goes tonight. But the bottom line is this, come clean. Stop justifying. Because when you stop justifying your sins, and you say, I, I'm guilty, now, now the blood of the cross, the blood of Christ, can wash away all sin. 
and cleanse every conscience. Father, I pray right now, if you're here, and up, up until this service, you've had a heavy conscience. I want you to raise your hand. You've been dealing with guilt. I see one. I see two. I see three. I see four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You've been dealing with guilt. In fact, you've got people that guilt trip you all the time. They know how guilty you feel. They use it to their advantage. Tonight that ends. That's going to end tonight. You are walking out of here forgiven. Forgiven. The miracle tonight is to be forgiven. It's not to have a, a, an ankle uh, healed or diabetes. It's to be forgiven. I want, I want you to do something brave. This tax collector, he prayed this prayer publicly, out loud, in the temple. He beat his breast and he said, God, forgive me for I am a sinner. I want you to publicly leave your seat and come to this altar. We're talking coming clean tonight. Jesus, hallelujah, all guilt and all shame ends tonight. Whatever it is you did 10 years ago, 10 days ago, 10 months ago, 10 weeks ago, he forgives. But call it what it is. Don't excuse it. Cast down every argument. Every argument. Cast down every justification. As you justify, you're outside the realm of possibility. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Forgive me, God. I'm done justifying. Forgive me. Cleanse my conscience. And as guilt goes, I pray depression would go. I pray depression would leave tonight. As guilt goes, paranoia would go. There's a paranoia. Someone's struggling with this altar. The Bible says the wicked flee and no one is chasing after them. As long as you're mulling over your wickedness, you think everybody's chasing after you. Tonight, paranoia goes away. Be gone. Depression, be lifted. Mistrust, be lifted. Anxiety, there's an anxiousness. It's a fear that has to do with impending punishment. God's going to punish me. And it brings such anxiety, such dread to your life. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it. He came into the world to save it. He's saying to you tonight, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. All the stones are dropping tonight. All condemnation ends. Every stone drops tonight. Condemnation ends. Self-loathing ends. It ends. Anxiety, go. All anxiousness, go. All stress, stress that's rooted in guilt. The fear of being found out, the fear of being punished, the fear of being condemned. Hallelujah. The blood of Jesus Christ. Somebody say, the blood of Christ. Cleanse my conscience. 
Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the blood. Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. The blood. Hallelujah. This is the gospel tonight. Hallelujah. This is the good news. Oh, happy day. This is the good news. I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven. He has forgiven me. I was lost and now I'm found. Hallelujah. 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 Now listen, listen. He wants to renew your mind. This week you will blow it. At some point you're going to blow it. All right, I blew it at 3 o'clock today when I yelled at a lady in traffic. I yelled at her with the windows down so she didn't hear me, but I yelled. When you blow it, what's going to happen? You're going to hear the rooster crow. Your conscience is going to get real loud. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That means you're, you, you're healthy. If you're a healthy person and you eat unhealthy food, you get sick. That sickness says you're healthy. If you eat unhealthy food, you don't get sick. You're unhealthy. So when you get sick over your sin, that's a good thing. That's good. But now what do you do in that moment? Your cortisol level goes up. It means something's got to be done. Norepinephrine kicks in. It means you're highly focused. Usually you're focusing on whatever you did wrong. In that moment, come to the cross. Right away. Come to the cross. Listen, I'm talking about retraining your brain here. I'm talking about renewing your mind here. Don't get defensive in that moment. Don't justify. Don't say, well, yeah, I'm bad, but not that bad. Well, you know, I did wrong, but let me go do some good to wash away the wrong. Retrain the brain. Renew the mind. When you blow it this week, we got to learn to do the right thing after we did the wrong thing. We got to just say, God, I blew it. Forgive me right now, Lord. Have mercy on me. And just begin to thank him for the cross. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. If you fall this week, if you falter, you have an advocate with the Father. But don't justify. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's all yours, sister. Jesus, thank you, Lord. God bless you. Hallelujah. 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 Yes, God. Yes, God. Hallelujah. Can we all stand together tonight? Let's worship the Lord with a song. We've heard truth tonight. Amen. And you know what the Bible says? Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Can we take a few moments and worship and just revel in the truth, bathe ourselves in the truth? Come on, just let's receive the truth by singing worship to God, responding to the truth that we heard with heartfelt worship to God tonight. Amen. <laughs>